Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Storer, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is a show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. Or usually, except on this episode, because it's thematically appropriate, we are celebrating a film that is two years old. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, this is the last episode of, I guess, technically what you would call the first season of Weird Together. How you doing? I am doing great. The semester is almost over. Did I mention I have a PhD? No, this has never come up in the entire course of our friendship. So I'm an academic, you know, uh, so the, the semester is almost over. So I got to Google what is, academic. <laughs> right, right. A, C, A. No, so it's, yeah. I think that means um, you fly planes. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> um, so I, I'm going to be off for a month, which, you know, for this, for between semesters, which is grand, um, you know, so. I, I remember years ago, I was hanging out with a couple of friends and one of my friends, good friend of mine, was talking about how, you know, he wanted to bust his ass so he could retire young and, you know, work really hard and, you know, kind of do that thing and then retire young. And one of my other friends we were hanging out there with was also an academic. She's like, or you could get a job where you're off for a third of the year. And that, that's the path I've chosen. So, you know, Really looking forward to this break. I love what I do, but part of the reason I love it is because I get breaks. So, yeah. How are you, Bren? Uh, well, I, I am not cushioned by the bosom of academia. I mean, <laughs> I only work a third of the time, but that's because I'm chronically underemployed. That's fair. Yeah. I'll, although I'm about to start, uh, start some side work, which uh, I'm not going to talk about on air for insurance reasons. But uh, uh, yeah, so that, that'll help, help me stave off the wolves of hunger. So no, I, I, I am good. My life, as I mentioned uh, previously, I, 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 did a, I was invited to take part in a short film a couple weeks back. I did that. I was, I was riding the high of the, the dopamine surge of, of doing something novel and being around people all the time. And so I was really good for about a week after that. And now I'm back down to my usual, my usual emotional roller coaster. So, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm an Italian man. But I am an Italian man who is very excited to talk about today's film, this is a film that I was a big fan of when it first came out in 2021, and I've seen it now about four times, and I remain a fan of that film. And that film is Casey Tebow's Black Friday. All right, Joseph. So before we talk about Black Friday, we have to do that thing we do on the show where we acknowledge that you never watch a film in a vacuum. You go in there with your expectations. You go in there with your past experience. You go in there with the day you had. And so before we talk about Black Friday, we got to unpack the baggage. All right. So Joseph, what was your baggage going into Black Friday? As is often the case, I wasn't familiar with the film or the filmmaker. So the, the premise or the, the name of it, that it is something, you know, named Black Friday that is clearly kind of playing off of you know, the, the capitalist artifact that is uh, Black Friday, I had a feeling it wasn't, it was going to be a film that was going to not take itself too serious. It was going to be kind of more fun than anything you know, like Barbarian, a film that we did that was really fantastic recently. It was much more of a, a serious story kind of film. So I knew it was for something that I was going to have to kind of just enjoy as something a little tongue in cheek. And then when I saw the, the, you know, the movie poster with Bruce Campbell, and we know, you know, uh, his his history in terms of films, 
I had a pretty good idea what this was going to be. You know, it's going to be sort of a fun romp and hopefully doesn't take itself too seriously and ended up being that's more or less what it was. So that, that was kind of what I had going into it. As is usually the case, I have more baggage with this movie. Uh, this one's a weird one, though, uh, because uh, through a strange series of circumstances, uh, last spring I helped Casey Tebow get his Instagram account back. Okay. Um, and yeah, yeah. So just, just to quickly break that down, I first heard about Tebow on the Movie Crypt podcast in like 2019-ish. Uh, I watched his movie Happy Birthday, which I quite enjoyed. And I think I posted about it on Instagram. And he replied, you know, saying thank you for watching it. And we just exchanged a couple words. So I just always, you know, if someone's going to be like, like with you and me with, uh, with Spider One, uh, when we had that conversation with him about uh, Allegoria, you know, if someone takes the time to respond like that, I just tend to pay more attention to their art. And so when I knew Tebow had Black Friday coming out, I made sure to keep an eye out for it. So I'm not going to say I know him, but you know, we, we ha- we've had a few conversations. And then again, uh, spring 2022, I helped him get his Instagram account back. So that is my baggage going into Black Friday. And I'm very curious to hear your take on this one. Not only because, uh, again, I, I quite like the film, but because I think it is really rich in terms of subtext. I think there's a lot to talk about here. And of course, there's only one place we can do something like that. And that's the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph, what were your thoughts on Black Friday? Well, it was fun, right? It it didn't take itself too seriously, as as we talked about earlier, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek look at kind of consumerism and rampant capitalism. So I enjoyed that overall. Overall, it was, I probably didn't like it quite as much as you, which is again, a pattern here, but I did enjoy it. I think it knew what it was and it stuck to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it manages to pull off something that I think a lot of genre films struggle with, which is it manages to be a fun action horror comedy while having characters you actually give a shit about. You know, there's, there's that moment where the film uh, sort of has kind of slows down a little bit for the characters to interact in the back of the store. And there's some stuff that in, in that conversation they have that I really do want to get into later. But just having that moment for these characters to talk to each other, I thought was, was really great. And again, not something you often get to see. And, and I, like to a point, I get it, right? Because horror films quite often, they assemble a cast of characters for the you then watch get murdered one by one, right? And you don't want to get too attached to them because then you're not going to be engaging with the thrills of the kill. You're going to be going, oh, geez, RIP Jerry, you know? And um, I, I've definitely had that experience watching movies. Like I, there was one, bizarrely, The Mutilator. I was watching it and I thought, boy, this is actually a really good movie. I just want these kids to have a nice weekend. <laughs> And they did not, Joseph, they did not. So that was something that Black Friday did that I really appreciated was that it was, it was a horror film that actually took the time to flesh out its characters and to give them arcs, or at least some of them arcs, which again, not often something you see in these kinds of movies. Yeah, I would generally agree. I mean, I think they had a nice range of characters, some that were a little more serious than others, some that were a little bit more caricatures, like Brian, you know, the, the kind of the assistant manager felt very much like a caricature, whereas some of the other characters were a little bit more fleshed out. So I think there were a few points for me where it like the, the humor didn't always land for me. Um, sometimes it did. Uh, you know, I, I thought Dower Dennis voiced by Seth Green was one of the funnier <laughs> yeah. parts of the film. I really yeah. enjoyed the, the Teddy Ruxpin uh, meets Dilbert, although Dilbert, not a fan of, if you well, follow yeah. the, the creative. Dilbert yeah. when it was funny. 
when it was funny and and not yeah problematic before we knew who scott adams was exactly you know so there were moments that were funny right there were absolutely moments that were funny but there were points where it didn't quite land as well for me so it was a little uneven in that regard but you know again this is nitpicking maybe overall i thought it was reasonably funny I thought it looked great considering that, you know, uh, they had about 18 days to shoot it and they shot this basically in the height of COVID. So pre-vaccinations. Uh, and that's why in the film, you know, there's, I, I don't know if you caught this, but there's a couple moments where uh, I think it's Bruce Campbell's character says, oh, it's so smoky in here, but it's not. And they actually had the, they turned, I think they turned the gamma up or something to make it look more grayed out. But it's because at the time, the safety regulations were such they couldn't use any smoke. They couldn't use any fake fog because it was worried that it would somehow, uh, I guess, carry or sort of um, propagate the virus. So they weren't allowed to use anything like that. So I think it, it had a lot working against it, but I thought it still, it still worked in spite of that. Like the pure joy in just watching Michael Jai White kick some ass before being taken down by monsters. Like... Uh, I, I'll watch Black Dynamite do pretty much anything. <laughs> have you seen Black Dynamite? I have not, but I, I, I know he was in that and he was also Spawn. So as He well. was Spawn. Let's, actually, you know, I, you know what? I know a lot of people don't like that Spawn movie. I, I still quite like that. <laughs> it, it had a, I, I, despite the fact that my first girlfriend used to make me listen to the fucking soundtrack on repeat, which was not my kind of music at all. <laughs> but no, I, I stand Spawn. Uh, but yeah, watching him kick some zombie ass was, is always a blast. Uh, Devin Sawa is always watchable. You know, he's um, had a really kind of fascinating career arc. And I've seen him in some, some direct-to-video stuff that is otherwise pretty dreary. But he is always able to do something that just keeps you watching. Like, um, what was that terrible, terrible Sylvester Stallone movie? Uh, Escape, the, the third Escape Plan film. Sawa plays the villain in that, as, if I remember correctly. And he's, he, he, he's great. Uh, the third Escape Plan film is not great. I, I've, seen, I've seen all three. The second one is surprisingly good. The second one was directed by Stephen Miller. And um, Stephen Miller is, I don't think we've covered any of his movies on this show, but Miller is a guy who kind of works in the uh, sort of low, low like, the, like the indie level basically, but he does really great shit. He, he can make stuff like, you know how Bruce Willis makes these movies where he, you see his face on the cover and he turns up for about 20 minutes and it's very clear they shot all the scenes in a single day. Miller's made at least, I think, two of those, but he, they're always watchable. They're always watchable. And he's made some really great stuff, you know, like Silent Night, uh, his, his take on Silent Night, Deadly Night. Very, very good stuff. And he made the second Escape Plan film, which again, I think is really fucking entertaining. It's better than the first, and it had a fraction of the budget. But uh, I remember reading Stallone was very critical of him. And that's why he didn't, uh, originally, I think Miller was meant to do two and three and then Stallone is very critical of him for whatever reason, I assume because he actually had a functioning brain. And uh, he was replaced for the third film, which, again, to the film's detriment. Anyways, this is not about fucking Escape Plan, the Escape Plan trilogy. Anyways, Devin Sawa made Escape Plan 3 better. He's great in this. He's a lot of fun. Because, he, he, again, he gets to play a little bit against type. You know, he's not necessarily the hero. And with, that, with the jawline he's got going on, like that dude, he looks like a hero. And he gets to instead play that sort of, eh, you know, quasi-functional arrested adolescent. Which, uh, again, I, I thought he was great at. I think that was one of the more kind of interesting characters, right? The, the, the father and, you know, kind of his, his kind of the weirdness with his ex and her kind of new partner, but also, you know, kind of the, 
the relationship, semi-relationship with the really big age gap. Sort of kind of like, yeah, this person is sort of state of arrested development and kind of this really weird place he finds himself in his life. Um, so that was kind of interesting for sure. You know, there was a character I was a little disappointed in, and it's probably because of expectations that I wanted more out of this character, but that was Bruce Campbell's Jonathan Wexler. He had his moments, and I do think his character was sort of a vehicle for one of the more, I kind of, I think, um, kind of relevant subtexts here in terms of kind of the dehumanizing effects of rampant capitalism and how he sort of embodied that. But, you know, this is Bruce Campbell, right? So again, it's maybe expectations, you know, his history in this genre, right? You know, like in terms of like kind of the, the, the comedy horror kind of thing. I mean, he's, you know, he's in some, some of the archetypical films in that genre, right? It felt, you know, you described that sort of Bruce Willis shows up for a little bit of a film and a film, but it's really built around him. Whereas like, I felt like Bruce Campbell's character gave some laughs. I don't want to totally poo-poo it, but it just, it didn't deliver at the level I would have hoped, you know, in terms of, you know, there were a few funny moments and, you know, what have you. I, I, you know, I thought his self-sacrifice kind of uh, redemption arc felt unnecessary and forced. Like, why'd he have to jump down that chute? Like, he didn't need to. Like, so I don't know. Again, maybe it's suffering from high expectations because this is the prominent, you know, kind of actor in the film and what he's done in other pieces. I wanted maybe a little bit more from it. I, I think that was a common complaint with the film because I think there are so many expectations around Bruce Campbell appearing in genre stuff, right? I mean, Ash casts a long shadow. But I, I actually really appreciated his portrayal because I think it, it takes a little bit of an actor who is comfortable in his skin and who's not just doing shtick. And by this point, Bruce Campbell's career, he could be doing shtick. He could just be doing convention appearances and variations on Ash. And uh, his character from Burn Notice, whose name just went right out of my head. Um, but he, you know, he, he, instead he's taken on stuff like this. Uh, of course, years ago, he did Bubba Hotep for, for Don Coscarelli. And that was actually a surprisingly touching movie. For a film about Elvis with dementia living in a, a rest home and fighting a zombie that sucks people's souls out their butts. Uh, or a mummy that sucks people's souls out their butts. Like, it, it had a surprising amount of pathos. Uh, so I, I actually quite enjoyed Campbell in this because he didn't do the things that we expected him to do. You know, he, he instead got to play this very, very small, very weak man who is sort of that person we've all met who tries to, to replace the holes in their life with work and ends up finding it just eats away at you. Because I think that's what happens. And, and I mean, this is one of the things I think the film really nails. One, I think it nails retail culture very well. I think the writer, Andy's, uh, Andy Kraskoviak, if I remember right, I, th I believe he worked in a Bed Bath & Beyond and a bunch of different places. So he has that experience. And obviously, I, you know, I worked retail quite a bit when I was younger. This sort of obsession we have in late stage capitalism with work as identity is just, it, it, all it does is, is just eat us from the inside out. You know, all the people I know for who, who have made that their thing, you know, who've been like, oh, all, all I do is work. They're not fun people to be around. They're, they're not interesting people. And I find too that they're not ever producing, I shouldn't say ever, but quite often they're not really producing anything compelling. You know, there's a, there's a filmmaker, uh, I won't say who, I don't want to be a dick about it, but there's a filmmaker whose work I'm aware of who 
I would say hasn't really made anything in, in quite some time, but it, whenever you see them publicly, they're always talking about how busy they are. I never, I don't have time. I'm, I'm working. Yeah, but you haven't made anything of, of interest in a very long time. I mean, I'm sure you can justify why you're busy. You know, we always do. Like we, we're all, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm as culpable in this as anyone. Like I, I tend to self-identify with work a little too much. And let's face it, I make a fucking ghost podcast. Like I love it, but I'm not saving lives here. But I think we, we do that thing where it just becomes who we are. And I think, especially if, if, if you've tied your identity to work that is controlled by someone else, like working for a big box store, I think you do end up as this, you kind of have to take on them as part of your persona. And quite often that just means you're, a, you're a, a, an emotionally bankrupt person. And I think it was, for me, it was actually a really cool reversal to see Campbell not be the, the hero. Instead, he was the very... Uh, yeah, very weak, very sad, kind of pathetic guy. And, and I think people forget too, that's actually a big part of Ash's character, especially if you watch the series Ash vs. Evil Dead. I mean, Ash spends almost as much time running from the fight as he does having it. So I, I, I quite like that. I will admit that I, I found that his, the redemption part of his arc was really rushed. And I really noticed that on this walk, watch there, I thought, hmm, I feel like you know, there could have been a little more there in terms of explaining why he had to sacrifice himself uh, instead of just like, you know, because the first time I just, the speech, I was like, yeah, I get it. And then kind of as you're not as emotionally invested on subsequent watches, you start to think, hmm, hang on. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that was sort of my take on Campbell. And, and if, I do recommend watching Bubba Hotep. It is really good. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if my dis- disappointment, that's a strong word, but the, not quite living up is whether I wanted him to be the kind of character he was before, was I disappointed he'd come out with a chainsaw or something? Or was it because it felt like the character try, kind of tried to toe the line between being kind of absurd and ridiculous and serious and sympathetic and maybe didn't kind of pick a lane well enough for me? I don't know. Because there were points of the character that there were a little kind of caricatures, right? And so, but then it didn't maybe lean into that enough. Maybe I, I, and maybe that's what, and it didn't, I didn't need him to be the hero, but maybe I I needed him to kind of commit to either being a little more of a caricature or being less of one, you know, more of a serious enough. But again, this is, this is all very subjective. So that makes sense. But you did, I think you mentioned something about the representation of retail. And I, I think that's a really great point you bring up in terms of, what something the film did very well. And I, I think a big part of that, and you kind of alluded to this, is people in very different stations in life all kind of thrown together, right? You have the the character you talked about who is, you know, this was supposed to be a temporary job and he's been there for way too long and, and stunted kind of, you know, kind of emotionally or whatever, man child or whatever. And then you have you know, the, the couple employees, you know, the employee of the month, you know, she's who takes us way too seriously. Yes. And, and, you know, and then, you know, these other characters, some of, of whom this is sort of just a station life and others, this is a landing point, you know, and, you know, who have different expectations for this job and different levels of commitment to it. So that, that was certainly an interesting juxtaposition of all these people together. And that creates those different kind of stations in life, different expectations and different views of this job end up creating some of those tensions that we see kind of the conflict when they have those moments and, and, you know, where, where they're kind of 
they're at each other and, and saying some kind of hurtful things that they later sort of regret. Um, so that was really kind of an interesting thing. I, I think, though, yeah, and Jonathan's character I mentioned being a device for kind of, and I think this is a really important subtext of this, is that dehumanizing effect of capitalism sort of thing. And like, you know, I'm a sociologist, so I look at how structures and social structures influence behavior and how we create those social structures as well. And you look at it how this 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 structure of profitability and you know the corporate expectations to you know be profitable drove Bruce Campbell's character, Jonathan Wexler, to like really abandon, at least early in the film, kind of reasonable senses of humanity. No, we need if we work hard, we can reopen by 2 a.m. Right? After after all this stuff's going down. And it, it's it's not until very late in this where, oh no, there's literally alien zombie things or whatever it is that are killing people. Oh, maybe I guess we do have to worry about survival first and profit meeting our goals second. And, you know, I, I would say that was unrealistic if we hadn't just gone through COVID. Right. And, yeah. you know, and, and uh, having all these people just rushing, you know, just for the sake of normality, just for the sake of feeling like everything is okay, even though it's you know, patently not people just running back out into the world, coughing in each other's mouths and giving each other uh, you know, terrible vascular disease that they're trying to convince themselves is just a cough or a flu. Um, I would say that was unrealistic if not for the, the events of the last three years. No, and it's interesting that you mentioned it was filmed kind of, kind of in the midst of, of that, right? So I wonder how much of that was an intentional critique of that, right? So, Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. I know um I listened to an interview with Tebow where he's talking about uh he, he was directing not only wearing a mask but a full face shield. And it's still pretty common to see uh, I mean obviously I'm not involved in that industry but from press photos I see, you know, there are still quite often uh crew uh wearing masks, you know, directors giving direction where they'll be wearing face masks, but the shields are just not not done anymore. But at the time, you know, they were fully kitted up, which, you know, I, I have to imagine made communication a little more difficult when you're trying to build rapport with your actors. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I, I think like 20 years from now, looking back at film and television and, you know, recognizing things that were filmed during the COVID era and the various kind of variations of the face masks and, and the shields that were used and the shields, you're right. That was an early kind of, kind of adaptation that kind of seemed to go away, you know? You saw a lot of people trying to do that as an alternative for whatever reason and multiple reasons, I guess it, it kind of went back towards the face coverings and, and the shields kind of went out of vogue. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, not to spend too much time on it, but I mean, that's largely, I think, because the, the shields don't do anything to, or don't do much they inhibit direct droplet, like droplet transmission, but you're still talking and you're, you're still emitting the virus, which then just builds up in the air around you. Whereas the mask sort of tamps that down. Right. Uh, again, so their I mean, efficacy. when you th- when you think, what's that? So the efficacy is the real reason they went away. They weren't as effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like they were helpful, but they weren't. The uh, the mask is still the the best form of of restricting uh, transmission. And I mean, God, you know, I think about that man. It's it's hard to imagine. That's almost four years ago now. It still feels it feels both a million miles away and and right here. So going back to that sort of uh, the dehumanizing effect. So like. It is interesting how those structures like shape how we how we act because here you have again Bruce Campbell 
acting in kind of inhumane ways. But even at macro levels, you have ins- whole institutions and organizations and industries that will, in the name of profitability, rationalize kind of actions that hurt people, you know, or that lead to, to harm. And I think this maybe here in Bruce Campbell's character, Jonathan Wexler, you see at a micro level, an individual level, the manifestation of that, but it gets more kind of dangerous, I think, at corporate levels because you have the people at the top who make these decisions, like, you know, that, you know, we, we see as the film unfolds that uh, the holiday bonuses they were all expecting were withheld from this company that's probably quite profitable. And I think that this is something that I've talked about in some of my sociology classes. These decisions are made at the top by people who have layers of buffering between them and the people they impact, right? So you have executives who make decisions about bonuses, about salary, about staffing, and that they say, well, this is what we needed to do to be profitable. And then they push those things down the pipeline and at further away you get, you have actors who, and when I say actors, I mean people, not in terms of film actors, but people in society, who then have to make decisions of how to uh, kind of implement those things that come down from on high, right? And, and those things in an industry like this, it always ends up being profitability means cut costs, increase revenue, right? Increase income. So you have further down, you have people suppressing wages, you have people withholding bonuses, you have people understaffing space, you know, various kinds of spaces and organizations. And those things end up immiserating the people at the bottom. There, there's, a, there's a documentary I show in my, my sociology classes where I talk about, that's about uh, the assisted living industry and how these decisions like that made at the top have resulted in, in this one particular corporation they follow through this documentary, you know, understaffing facilities that lead to people, you know, elderly populations that get harmed and killed, right? Because of accidents and not enough staff monitoring them. And, you know, at the top of the corporate level, they will put down these expectations in terms of, you know, maintaining lower staffing levels and this, that, and the other, but they'll, they'll just put the burden on the, the, the laborer that, well, you just need to care more about your job and do the best job possible and care for the populations while they're at the simultaneously creating a structure where the workers are understaffed and can't realistically do everything. So that's, that's, it happens at, at, a, at a large scale level, but here in the film, we saw it more of a, just kind of at the worker level, what that looks like with uh, Jonathan Wexler as sort of the conduit for delivering <laughs> those evil corporate sort of mandates. Well, and I think that's the sad thing, right? Because I've seen that situation. I've met Jonathan essentially just in in different form, and you get these people who don't have a lot of connections in the world. And like you know, he says, "This store is my family. I don't have friends. I don't have family. Like work is is kind of who you are." And especially, at, you know, in the modern era, it's even harder to connect to people. You know, people are so overloaded overloaded with the expectations of work. People are, you know, they're they're taking in far too much information through digital means. And I, I also think that we have, to a certain degree, fetishized being antisocial. I think I, I am, I'm very critical, like the meme account I run for the Ghost Story Guys, you know, we, we've, we've built it up to, or I've built it up to like 100 plus thousand followers. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I've managed to accomplish this for whatever little it's worth. But, you know, one of the things I've noticed is the stuff that really hits is stuff about being antisocial. Like, oh, people are gross. I can't stand being around people. 
we're social animals. You know, I mean, sometimes again, you're overloaded. I get it. But in the end, our only hope is each other. And, and so we, we, all these things kind of, again, this, this, all these different things form this culture, which just kind of keeps us further and further away from each other. And I think you end up with a lot of people like Jonathan. And I think the problem then is, you know, they, they, they latch onto things. Uh, they, and they latch onto movements or they latch onto companies and they just become that their avatars. And, and, you know, I mentioned off air to you about a friend of mine who was not really the person I thought they were. They were just most strongly influenced by whoever happened to be nearest to them at the time. And I think that's what Jonathan is. You know, he spends his time in the company. So he becomes reflective of the corporate culture. And, you know, it's only at a late stage in his life, like really at the very end when he kind of realizes, oh, you know, there might be actually be a person in here. And this person doesn't want what my, what my overlords want. But I've worked with a lot of folks who never had that realization. You know, it was just the company is right the company, this, and, and it's sad because I, I just think they've never had a chance to access their essential humanity. You know, another layer to that that is to also kind of quite problematic is you reference this sort of feeling of family, right? That some people talk like, you know, his character says, this is the only family he knows. And a lot of times workplaces will, especially workplaces where people are overworked, underpaid, undercompensated, and undersupported, will talk about this family and will really, we're, we're a family here. And what's really just so kind of frustrating or, or really kind of just feels evil about that is, you know, there's a sort of idea that we will put up with things from family we wouldn't put up with from other people because there's these stronger bonds and that's just a family you're supposed to, you know, be more forgiving and more enduring and this and the other. And so it's like, hey, we're not going to pay you enough and we're going to put you in really stressful, overworked, under supported situations and talk about being a family so that you will put up with this shit, you know? Yeah. It's, it's abusive family. Yeah. Right. And you see these really kind of really out of touch corporate types, you know, there, there was a person who kind of, there was a kind of a soundbite from a person. I don't remember who it was and really wouldn't even want to give them the mention who they were specifically, but we talked about how employees have gotten very entitled, like workers have gotten entitled and, ex, you know, and they need to be more fearful of losing their jobs because we're in this era where, you know, like, so like that's, you know, what he's describing is entitled. I think we would think of as workers, actually humans being empowered, you know, to, to have agency and not be mistreated. But like the, you know, in, in the economy that came out of COVID where there was a point where, you know, a lot of people had not gone back to work or had started their own businesses or had whatever. And there's, there's been a lot of various kind of things have happened in terms of the job market since then. But there was at least a period where workers had more power than they had in the past, you know, and employers didn't like that. And I think those kinds of things all kind of come back to this sort of disparity of power, that kind of power differential or asymmetry when employers have it, they want us all to be happy family. <laughs> but when workers actually have it, you know, then employers can't just do that. Right. And it, it, then they, then they talk about how entitled we are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a really great book. It's dense, but if, if, you know, some folks might be interested, it's, it's called the fall of the house of labor by, I think Elizabeth phones wolf. 
And it's a really fascinating examination of how basically since the, the, the height of organized labor, the you know, government institutions and private institutions have worked very hard to dismantle them and to sort of put workers back under the, the control of, of the management. And, and I think it's because, yeah, the, the, a powerful worker can determine the cost of his own labor, and that upends the whole system. You know, and and I, th- I think, yeah, the number of idiots who say things like, no one wants to work anymore, that's bullshit. And, and I have seen over and over, this is a motif that's repeated throughout history. Whenever workers demand, equal, like basically demand fair payment for their labor, there is this notion, well, no one wants to work anymore. Well, no, no one wants to be exploited anymore. To take it back to Black Friday, though, um, something I really, really loved about the film was the, the, uh, the effects work. They just looked great. Like the zombies, I thought was a really, they had a really unique look. You know, they didn't go for the sort of just standard shambling, especially once they sort of transformed into their second form where they had the kind of more prominent jaws. Um, I, I really thought those were creepy as shit. And the fact that it all in the end kind of turned into a giant kaiju, mm-hmm. I am always here. For, for giant kaiju monsters. I just, I remember the first time I watched, I thought, no, no. Oh yeah. Okay. And I was, it, it's just great. Anything that turns into a giant monster by, pardon me, that has something that turns into a giant monster by the end, I am on board with. And I, I also, I just loved the, the, um, video game-esque way of, of taking it down, you know, where you, you sort of move the, <laughs> move the, the forklift into position. And I, I don't know, the whole thing just, it worked for me. I, I, jokingly was watching the film just thinking how I enjoyed the fact that in terms of behavior, the infected shoppers were indistinguishable from actual Black Friday holiday shoppers, which was, you know, which was also a nice, an interesting social commentary. Going back to what we were talking about, how people just want things to be normal and will do whatever they can to sort of try and pretend everything is normal, which I think kind of t- ties into what we were talking about, about, about labor exploitation as well, right? We just want to keep moving forward. We don't want to, because if we disrupt things, uh, we got to, and then things are disrupted. And like, w- things might be bad, but they're bad, I'm used to. And the scene where uh, Chris, who's obviously a germaphobe, where he's called to clean up because a, a, a customer has vomited, and the customer's vomited up their entire intestines. And just the notion, I love that, the idea that, well, yeah, it's vomit. It, sure, it's an entire, uh, it's an entire uh, t- digestive tract, but whatever, just, scoop it up, throw it away. Let's get this bitch back on the road. Because how many times have you heard stories about people who've like, oh, we got to clean up in the bathroom. And to say that it's like, they should just burn the bathroom down. You know, I've walked into some truck stop bathrooms that look like they were the site of a murder scene. And I just walked right back out like, nope, I will be peeing in the ditch. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Going back to the life of retail. So yeah. Yeah. That's it. And just the, again, like the, the way it, it depicted the passive aggression of that world as well, I enjoyed. There's that moment where in the beginning where, um, I can't remember her name, but employee of the month, she just, she notices that Chris's shirt is untucked and, and just like, well, that's, that's grounds for a write-up. And I remember that. I remember that someone, like that was a thing that had power. We're going to, I'm going to write you up. What the fuck does that even mean? You step away from it 20 years, 20 years away from my, my time in retail. And I think, who cares? I, what, what, what is, that's a nothing thing. That's and we like, all knew uh, that person too. We all worked with that person. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. So Joseph, any final thoughts on Black Friday? It was a fun film. I mean, you know, cer- certainly had a few minor critiques of it, but you know, overall I enjoyed it 
it knew what it was and you know, it kind of stuck with that. And I think, I think it in general accomplished what it set out to do. I agree. I, I, again, I quite like the film. I, I watch it once a year and it, it, honestly, I just watched, uh, Eli Ross Thanksgiving a little while ago. I went to go see it uh, a couple of days after it opened. Actually, no, sorry. I saw a preview screening for it and it's, it's a hoot. It's a great, great fun, uh, slasher movie. And I, it, honestly, it, it opens the, the sort of the inciting incident is a black Friday riot. And so I think it pairs nicely with this film. If you're looking for a, a great double feature this holiday season, you could do uh, no better, I think, than Eli Ross Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Black Friday is, I believe, streaming on Prime in Canada at the very least, I'm sure. And I have to believe if it, or I have to imagine rather, if it's on Prime in Canada, it probably is in the US. Uh, also, you can rent it on all the standard VOD platforms. Joseph, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-1-3 and at YouTube or on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule. If you're interested in NFL football, that's kind of my other thing I do. Perfect. I'm Largely the Truth on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd. You can find my other show, The Ghost Story Guys, on podcast platforms everywhere. This show is edited by Tanya Downing. All our music is composed and performed by Elliot Wilder of The Revenants. You can find more from him at therevenants1.bandcamp.com or by searching for The Revenants on streaming platforms everywhere. Our theme song is Rest in Peace, also by The Revenants, from their album Music from Big Beige. As we mentioned, this is going to be our last episode for 2023. We will be back in January 2024. Until then, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Let me rest.